Hello everyone, my name is J.B. Hickson with NBW Ministries, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message. Today is Monday, December the 25th, 2023. Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, the podcast you're about to hear was pre-recorded in November of this year, just last month. I had the opportunity to teach uh, five days uh, eight hours a day, actually, at a, a school down in Beaumont, Texas, on the doctrine of salvation. And uh, since we're out of town here the last part of December, enjoying some uh, good family time together, like many of you over the holidays, we thought this would be a good time to post some of those uh, lectures uh, and just uh, extol the virtues of God's amazing grace and explain uh, how that uh, is such a blessing in our lives. You know we're passionate about the gospel here at NBW Ministries, and so uh, a little bit different than what we usually do with a guest and talk about current events and other uh, topics of interest. Uh, this time we're going to be uh, focusing on some key passages of Scripture each day this week, Monday through Friday, that are often misunderstood, and uh, you might call them tough texts. And uh, the first passage that we're going to deal with today on this uh, Christmas Day is uh, from John chapter 15, Jesus' intimate discussion with his disciples in the upper room, uh, all about abiding in Christ. Most people really don't understand what it means to abide in Christ. And in this uh, lecture, I'll take you through uh, verse by verse this great passage of Scripture, compare other passages of Scripture, and explain what Jesus really meant when he encouraged the disciples and us, by extension, to abide in Christ. So I hope you enjoy this uh, presentation. Again, it's pre-recorded from earlier in November uh, when I was speaking at a, a school uh, there on the doctrine of salvation. As always, if we can help with anything, feel free to reach out through our website, notbyworks.org. We are out of the office this week, so we won't be answering the phone or uh, responding to emails unless it's extremely urgent. But pray for our safe travel as we enjoy the rest of our time together as a family. And then we look forward to a great uh, new year uh, when we get back. So I hope you enjoy the podcast. Tune in every day this week as we talk about different passages of Scripture. Tomorrow we'll be looking at James chapter 2 and what it means to have dead faith. And then we'll go to, well, we'll spend actually two days on that. Uh, and then we'll go to uh, Romans chapter 10 and then First uh, John chapter 3. So God bless you, everyone. As always, uh, you know, we appreciate your support. We appreciate your prayers and really excited about what the Lord has done here this year and looking forward to the next. God bless. All right, uh, let's turn to John 15 and we'll talk about uh, this famous passage and how it relates to the whole idea of salvation and sanctification. And uh, before we get to that, though, I want to reiterate this foundational principle that we talked about several times over the last three days, but uh, the difference between our position and our practice. As I said, this is so foundational that when you get your hands around it, it will impact you know, your Christian life uh, you know, dramatically, and, and it'll also help you interpret the scriptures better when you have this paradigm to work with. So our position in Christ relates to justification. Our practice relates to sanctification. As I've said, justification rescues us from the penalty of sin. Sanctification refers to being rescued from sin's power. Justification happens at a one-time moment in time when we believe the gospel. Uh, sanctification occurs at various points in time as we walk in the Spirit. So this is our salvation, and this is our discipleship, right? 
Now, what I've talked about is how our practice in life ideally should reflect our position in Christ. That's the goal. When we sin, we're not reflecting who we are in Christ. It's, a, it's an anomaly. It's an inconsistency. Uh, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It just means you're unhealthy. You're, not, you're spiritually not where you need to be. Now, both of these, our position and our practice, as I've said, come by faith. So justifying faith occurs only once in a lifetime when you believe the gospel. As I said, it rescues from the penalty of sin. It results in our positional righteousness and brings eternal life. Sanctifying faith, walking by faith, occurs at various points throughout your life, rescues you from sin's power. It results in practical righteousness, and it brings about abundant life. Okay, See the difference? So as you read Scripture and you come across the passages, you have to ask yourself, is this dealing with our justification or is it dealing with our, uh, with our sanctification? So with that background, let's take a look at John 15. So the context here is it's Thursday night of Passion Week. Later that night, within a few hours, Jesus would be betrayed, arrested, tried, and laid in the tomb on early Friday morning. And he is gathered to celebrate the Passover with his disciples in the upper room. And he in, you know, has a lot of incredible things to say in these waning moments before he would be crucified. Uh, and John is recording this in, uh, in John 13, really to 17. 17 is the high priestly prayer, so really 13 to 17. But he's interacting with the disciples in chapters 13 to 16. So John's gospel is unique among all of the Gospels. You probably know that uh, already, but the first three Gospels are what we call the Synoptic Gospels. Why do we call them the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Okay, they're similar, right? In what way? Synopsis of Jesus' life. That's true, but John gives a synopsis of Jesus' life, too. They're very similar, and like they portray a lot of the same miracles, a lot of, a lot of the same Yeah. Yeah, they, they're <coughs> synoptic. Syn, the preposition in Greek, with. Optic mean you know, uh, to see. So they're seen together, seen with each other. So yeah, they are unique, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they... They follow the same general pattern. They have a lot of overlap. They carry a lot of the uh, same uh, details from different eyewitness perspectives. John, uh, on the other hand, is in a completely different uh, category. It's still a gospel, and gospel is a particular kind of literature in the Bible in which the writer, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is uh, presenting selected events from the life and ministry of Christ in order to make a theological point, right? So it's not like a normal historical narrative. It is a theological treatise of sorts. In that regard, it's similar to an epistle, but it is specifically related to the life and ministry of Christ. It's not strictly speaking chronological in the sense of blow by blow. It's generally chronological in that it starts with Christ's early life, especially the synoptic gospels, his birth, and goes to his crucifixion and resurrection. But John's gospel is unique. 93% uh, or so of the gospel of John is not found in any of the other gospels. And John's purpose statement, or John's goal here, is to write 
to a Gentile audience to show them that Jesus is the fully divine Son of God and that if they would believe in Him, they could receive eternal life. Uh, so we know it was written by the Apostle John, roughly 70 A.D., uh, from Ephesus. We have several early church fathers uh, who mentioned that. Uh, Eusebius, for example, tells us John composed the gospel while he was at Ephesus. Uh, you'll see some modern commentators suggest that it was written later, from, say, 85 to 95. They do that because that's when you can pretty clearly date the epistles and Revelation. But I think um, I prefer the 70 A.D. date just because, you know, the way he describes Jerusalem and that region seems to be before, uh, you know, Rome ransacked the city and destroyed the temple. He he's no, has, makes no reference to Jerusalem's destruction or the destruction of the temple, which seems conspicuous by its absence. Um, so key words in John's Gospel, believe is used a hundred times. Pistuo is the verb. Abide, meno, is used 40 times. And he uses the phrase eternal life 17 times. Uh, as I mentioned, John omits any reference to Jesus' genealogy, his birth, his baptism, his temptation, any reference to exercising demons. There's no parables in John. Transfiguration is not mentioned. The Lord's Supper is not mentioned, uh, even though he has the upper room discourse, and uh, the, the agony in Gethsemane and the ascension, all omitted from John's gospel. Ninety-three percent, as I said, uh, of John's gospel is, is not mentioned in the other three gospels. He's the only one that includes this upper room discourse that we are going to be looking at chapter 15, a portion of that. Um, he includes only seven miracles. Changing water to wine, healing the nobleman's son, healing the lame man at Bethesda, feeding the 5,000, walking on the water, healing the blind man in chapter 9, and then raising Lazarus. Uh, he has the seven I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then the one we're going to be looking at is the seventh of those I am statements. I am the true vine in John 15. So again, its purpose is to convince people that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing in him they can have eternal life. Um, and this purpose statement is given in John 20. We looked at that earlier. Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name, John 20, 30, and uh, 31. Uh, again, in the immediate context, he's in the upper room. He's in Jerusalem for Passover. It's a Thursday night. Uh, and by the way, if you've ever struggled with you know the dating there of the first century and the apostolic age we've got on our website under the free content section of our online store a couple of documents i highly recommend you download you'll come back to them again and again it's by harold honer one of the preeminent scholars on dating the the uh, apostolic age and he goes through the whole first century from the time of the church and then there's another document that's the chronological aspects in the life of Christ, and it, it kind of calculates the first, that, that final week of Christ's life. Uh, so 33 A.D. is the year that we're talking about. 
Uh, we know Jesus was born uh, no earlier than, uh, I mean, excuse me, no, let's see, no earlier than 6 to 5, the winter of 6 to 5 B.C., you know, we, we came back later, years later, and redated it in the Gregorian world with zero allegedly being kind of the delineating mark between, you know, Christ when he was born and after he was born. There is no zero year on the calendar, of course, and even at that, they were off a few years. We know this because we know historically Herod died in April of 4 B.C., and Herod was still living when Jesus was born because he, he issued that edict to kill all the babies. So most scholars put his birth, we know it was in the winter, sometime, say, December of 6 B.C. into January, February, March of 5 B.C. Conceivably could have been earlier, could have been the seven, winter of seven, winter of eight even. Uh, depends on how long you think it took the Magi to get to uh, Jerusalem when Jesus was a young boy, a younger child. But in any event, uh, using that date, uh, we can definitely, so we, we know that the Crucifixion happened in 33 A.D. We know that from Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9 because we have a definite beginning point, the decree of Artaxerxes in 444 B.C. And we know Daniel says that's going to be 173,880 days later that Christ the Messiah comes, and that puts us right at the year 33 A.D. of the triumphal entry. Only question remains is how old was Jesus? He could have been no younger than 37. He might have been older if he was born even earlier than we think. Uh, so people think that because Luke says Jesus was about 30, uh, that he was 30. Well, Luke doesn't say he was 30, he says he was about 30, and that fits with that uh, cultural usage of that phrase. So here it is, 33 A.D., he, on March 30th, 33 A.D., he rides into the Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, the triumphal entry, fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Then uh, on Tuesday, March 31st, he overturns the tables of the money changers and curses the fig tree. Uh, Wednesday, he has that scathing rebuke of the first century Jewish leaders uh, and preaches the Olivet Discourse in answer to the disciples' question, well, when is your kingdom going to come? Thursday, he meets in the upper room. Here's a rendition of a first century Israelite house, and you can see the upper uh, room, if you will, uh, the top floor. Um, here's a, a similar rendering of an ancient home church or home synagogue. Uh, this is an actual photo that, it, in, if you visit Jerusalem, they, this is the traditional site of the upper room discourse. We don't know for sure if this is it, probably not, but this is what is kind of commemorated as where this uh, took place. So that just kind of gives you a visual as we think about Jesus sitting around the table with his uh, with his disciples. This was the same night that Jesus was betrayed. Um, this is where he gives the last of his famous I am statements when he says, I am uh, the vine. Uh, so that's Thursday night. Friday, uh, by Friday he's laid in the tomb. On uh, So that would be, let's see, the, the third and then he's resurrected on the 5th on Sunday. Uh, people sometimes make a big deal about, well, the, doesn't the Bible say he was in the grave three days and three nights? So they think that has to mean 72 hours. We have another article that I put together on our website that's free called Three Days and Three Nights and proving that in the Hebrew culture that is an idiom. It doesn't mean like we think it does in English, 72 hours. It's a 
any part of a day could be one minute is considered a day. So three days and three nights means any part of those three days or nights. And so he was in the tomb on a Friday, he was in the tomb on a Saturday, he was in the tomb on a Sunday. That meets the qualification. And I give some Old Testament examples of that same phrase uh, in that article. So it uh, works out perfectly with the timing and it's, it's, a, it's certainly the traditional view of the church, regardless of the exegetical proof of it, that Jesus rose on a Sunday, but some people try to say, well, he must have died on a Wednesday in order to be there 72 hours, and that, that's not necessary, and that's not at all what the text says. So here we are, Thursday night, and he's talking to the disciples, so much rich information and theology and practical encouragement from the Lord himself that we could apply to our lives today from this text, but let's, uh, let's look at John 15. He starts with this seventh I am statement, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So Jesus frequently, in his earthly ministry, used a grapevine to describe the nation of Israel. We see that in Matthew 20 and 21, Mark's uh, gospel in Mark chapter 12, Luke's gospel, Luke 13 and Luke 20. Uh, so the true vine clearly is Jesus, and the vine dresser is God. This is carrying over Old Testament metaphors that we see in some of the prophets in the Old Testament. Then he goes right into every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So who are these branches? That's the, the real crux of the matter. I think we get a pretty clear clue when he says, in me, now, this is prior to Paul, so we, don't, we can't infuse Pauline theology into Jesus' statement to the disciples, but whatever, even though it might not have Pauline overtones you know, of the position, our position in Christ, like we later come to find out, it's got to mean something to be in Christ. Um, Jesus uh, had, you know, in the, earlier on in this evening, this intimate discussion around the table, he had talked about the importance of... Uh, mutual indwelling between believers and Christ, John 14. Uh, at this point, only the 11 are present, as I mentioned yesterday. Jo uh, Judas had already left. We know Judas was an unbeliever, and we know the other 11 were believers. Um, in me is used 16 times in John's Gospel, and in each case it refers to a genuine relationship with Christ, either between Christ and the Father or Christ and believers. So for those who think that you know, in me here could refer to a person who merely professed to be saved but really isn't, would ignore both the context of this passage that we're about to walk through as well as John's use of the phrase very clearly in other contexts throughout his gospel. So, and if you consider the analogy itself, first of all, branches in a vine, by definition, share the very life of the vine. And so what I've said for years if you've ever shared the life, it can never be said that you never shared the life. So let me say that again. If you've ever shared the life, it can never be said that you never shared the life. To be in me uh, is to be a Christian. Uh, and as I said, it's kind of similar to Paul's favorite phrase, in Christ. So these branches are clearly believers. They're in Christ. So he's talking about... Uh, believers in Christ that bear fruit, 
And the contrast here is not between, this is where you got to lay the foundation right up front and, and remember this to understand the whole passage. The contrast is not between believers and unbelievers. The contrast is between believers who bear fruit and believers who do not bear fruit. <laughs> branches that bear fruit and branches that do not bear fruit. That's the contrast, right? Fruit bearing is the normal expected natural result of having divine life. But it is not inevitable, obviously, because Jesus references here branches in the vine, he is the true vine, that do not bear fruit. Um, so we know that must uh, be the case. Uh, in Galatians, we've talked about that in the last session, uh, in Galatians 5, I think it's 25. Let me look real quick. It's at the end of that little section where he talks about the flesh versus the spirit. So, yeah, Galatians 5.25. This is so, so profound, but people miss it. After describing the, the flesh lusting against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, this is what the flesh looks like, this is what the spirit looks like, he concludes this section in Galatians 5.25. If we live in the spirit... And the idea there is since, since we are alive spiritually, we've been born again, let us walk in the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, it means it's possible to be alive spiritually, but not walking in the Spirit. And Paul's whole point in Galatians 5 is that you can be alive spiritually, but not producing fruit of the Spirit. Because you're walking in the flesh, not the Spirit. So we're supposed to walk in the Spirit. In Ephesians, he calls it yielding to the Holy Spirit. We talked about that before lunch. And if you do, you will bear fruit. So every farmer knows that there can be genuine life in a fruit vine without fruit. So, you know, the whole premise here that we're arguing against is the mistaken uh, and really devastating notion uh, doctrinally that unless you're bearing fruit, you are not a Christian. And that flies in the face horticulturally, it flies in the face contextually, it just doesn't really make sense. He's clearly implies here that there are branches that bear fruit and there are branches that don't bear fruit, and they are both in connected, you know, to the uh, vine. And, uh, and Jesus is the vine, and he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. We'll come back to what that means in a moment. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, right? Um, I, we, we had an experience years ago when my kids were younger. In fact, they weren't even all born yet. Uh, my youngest two had not been born yet. But we lived in a house that uh, was in a typical subdivision. And uh, there was a tree in the back corner of the backyard. Uh, we had a fenced-in yard. And it looked like any other tree. Never really thought about it. We had a few trees in the yard. It was a wooded, fairly, you know, a lot of trees in the yard. And I remember coming home from school one day, I was teaching full-time at the time, and the kids met me in the driveway, and they were so excited, all abuzz about something. And they said, Daddy, come here, we've got to show you, we've got to show you. And went back in the backyard, they took me back to that tree, and guess what had appeared on that tree for the first time? We lived there four years, for the first time, an orange. We had no idea this was an orange tree. Don't know who planted it, don't know how long it had been there. The house was, you know, 30 years old by the time we bought it. But it was an orange tree, sure as, sure as you could see. We, so we picked it, we took it inside, and we ate it, and it was kind of a fun little family 
experience. Lived there another year and never produced another orange, as far as we know. But what's that? So it wasn't an orange tree then, right? We just thought it was an orange tree, right? Right. So here's my question. You know, in the three years before that experience, was that tree an orange tree? Absolutely. And any expert in trees, arborist, could have taken a branch or a leaf and examined it and said, yep, what you've got here, my friend, is an orange tree. The orange was completely unnecessary to prove the identity of that tree. Now, when you see an orange, you can, you know, for a layman, you can say, oh, this is obviously an orange tree. I'm not going to pick an orange off of the tree and say, look what I just picked off of my pear tree. You know, I mean, it's pretty clear that it's an orange in that point. But it doesn't need the fruit to be an orange tree. Again, every farmer knows that there can be genuine life in a fruit vine without the fruit being present. And so Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. Lewis Perry Chafer, as I've mentioned, lists 33 things that happen to a person the moment he or she trusts Jesus Christ as Savior. We've talked about a lot of these. Positionally made right with God, reconciled to a holy God so that the enmity is removed, uh, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, uh, you know, justified, positionally sanctified, uh, on and on. But all of those things are invisible changes. Fruit is, is what a plant produces on the outside that other people can see and benefit from. It's the visible effects of the inner working power. And although it might be difficult for a Christian to resist the Spirit's promptings so consistently and thoroughly that we never bear fruit, Jesus clearly allows for that possibility here, doesn't he? There are branches in me that bear fruit, and there are branches in me that don't bear fruit. It's pretty clear. So what is the result of being unfruitful? If you're one of those branches that does not bear fruit, what happens? Well, he says, every branch that in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, as you know, the Bible wasn't written in English, so we've got to ask, what is, the, what is that takes away a... Uh, translation of, and it's the Greek word iro, which means to either lift up or take away. It does not mean, by the way, as the NIV suggests, to cut off. That's a terrible translation. We're going to see what where pruning comes into play in a little bit, but that's not what, that's, that's a terrible translation. It's either takes away or lifts up. It's used, Iro is used 102 times in the New Testament, and 26 of them are in John's Gospel, including seven of them where it unambiguously means lift up. For example, John 5, 9, and immediately the man was made well, and he took up his bed, lifted it up, and he walked. He didn't take it away. He lifted it up. Um, or John uh, eight fifty nine, they took up stones to throw at him. You know, didn't take the stones away. They took them up, right? Um, or what about this? John eleven in, in the context of Lazarus, they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. All of these are iro, right? 
and uh, in both, and it's used actually twice here in John 11, 41. Both of these are iro. In one case, it's taking away the stone. In the other case, it's Jesus lifted up his eyes, right? What's that? Yeah, he plucked out his eyes. Yeah, No, he lifted them up. So the question is, what does it mean in John 15? Does it mean take away or lift it up? Do we have any clues in the context? Context always determines the meaning. Well, if you understand horticulture, especially in that day, it kind of helps us interpret what Jesus was saying here. What he was referring to is the common springtime process of walking through the vineyards and lifting up drooping branches that were starting to drag the ground and become spoiled. As, as fruit grows on the vine, it makes the vines heavier, and they could drag all the way to the point of the ground, and then they're going to get wet, and you know, the water's going to collect around them, and they're going to rot. So it was common practice uh, to lift up in this springtime as the fruit began to appear, uh, these branches to make sure that they had the room to grow the fruit, to make sure the branches didn't become uh, rotted. And, and according to Harold Honer, I mentioned him a moment ago, according to his excellent work in piecing together the timeline of the first century, the upper room was delivered in the springtime, as I said, in March, right? Or April 1st, to be exact. So uh, it's, you know, even possible that Jesus gave this teaching as he and his disciples walked from the upper room down the Kidron Valley and across the Mount of Olives where he uh, was ended up being betrayed in Gethsemane. Um, later on in this analogy, this running metaphor that Jesus is giving in John 15, he's going to also refer to the fall process of pruning. But in this case, I think it means uh, lift up. So, Every branch that is in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts it up to help it bear fruit. And, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. So what's the result? If the result of being unfruitful is a lifting up, what's the result of being fruitful? Well, he's going to prune in order to bear more fruit. And God's always at work helping the believer in the maturing process to bear more fruit. Sometimes it's through discipline. Uh, it can be through blessing, but there are ways in which he helps the believer to bear more fruit. So the point is, he's not contrasting believers and unbelievers so that you've got to be abiding in him or you're going to hell. He's contrasting two kinds of believers who are both in Christ, uh, that some that are bearing fruit and some that aren't. Now, he mentions in the next verse, John 15, 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. This clearly refers to Christians. Jesus has used the same analogy talking to Peter back in, in uh, chapter 13, verse 10, the early stages. Remember, in the context of washing the feet. Uh, Peter says, no, you'll never wash my feet. And he says, "If you, you know, you, know you, don't, you don't have any part of me. He says, well, then wash my whole body, right? So the point of both lifting up and pruning is not to make us clean. Jesus very clearly says you're already clean. That's, that's not the point. You're already a Christian. The point of the lifting up and the pruning is to make us more fruitful, to help us bear fruit. It has no, no bearing on your identity. Are you part of the tree? It's are you bearing fruit? That's the issue. Uh, Jesus said to him, 
He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, right? Uh, but not all of you, of course, referring to Judas in this uh, context. So, um, and, then, and then back to verse 3, you are already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Jesus didn't want his disciples to conclude precisely the way a lot of people do today based on lordship, salvation, and Calvinism, that the absence of fruit uh, or the presence of it, it somehow weighed in on whether or not they have eternal salvation. He wants them to know, no, you're saved, but now let's talk about bearing fruit. Let's read on. Verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, and neither can you unless you abide in me. Um, I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Uh, a branch that becomes separated from the vine is clearly not going to be able to bear fruit, right? Sometimes in our modern culture, we take vines and, that have either broken off uh, of the plant or we break them off and we dry them and we make little decorations to put over the window or the door, little swags and things, right? Well, it would be strange indeed if I had come home from work that day and a dried vine decoration that we had had in the house for 10 years with dust on it and sitting up there, you know, and the kids had said, hey, Daddy, come here, we've got to show you. And all of a sudden, a fruit appeared on that dried up vine. That, that's not going to happen. If you want to bear fruit, you've got to stay connected to the vine. And that's Jesus' point here. You want to bear fruit, stick with me. Stay close to me. You can't be, going back to what we talked about before lunch, you can't be not abiding in Christ, living in sin, out of fellowship with the Lord, and expect to produce fruit of the Spirit. The phrase abide, which we already said is used extensively throughout John's writings, is the word meno, and it just means to remain close to. It's used 40 times overall in John, 23 times in 1 John. And you cannot read 1 John, which as we've said was written decades later, without recognizing the connection to what John is teaching under the inspiration of the Spirit and what Jesus had previously taught John and the other disciples in the upper room. John took it to heart. He understood in the decades since Jesus ascended to be at the right hand of the throne of God that you know throughout his life he's going to have to stick with the Lord. He's going to have to stay close to Him. He's going to have to meditate on what He had told them. Uh, by the time you get to the end of the first century, when John is writing the epistle of 1 John, no doubt John had in his access some of Paul's letters and all of the gospel letters, and he could read the written inspired Word of God as we can today to be strengthened and encouraged and built up in the faith. And that's the way he was remaining close to the Lord. right? And so, again, back to verse 4. The verb, it's in the imperative here, meaning that Jesus is commanding the 11 disciples to abide in him. It's not optional. Um, he, he, it's to be a committed follower of him. Why should disciples abide in Christ? Because apart from abiding, it's impossible to bear fruit. We, the branches, 
need to make a deliberate effort to remain in, in, in close, intimate fellowship with the vine, the Lord Jesus, right? And here's a quote by Hodges. Now, I, I want to caution you, Jane Hodges, you know, in the later years before he went to be with the Lord, uh, had some pretty off-base things to say that he believed. Uh, primarily, he taught that you could be saved without knowing that Jesus died and rose again for your sins. That is clearly false. And anybody that teaches that today, you need to stay as far away from them as you can. That's a very serious heretical teaching. To the notion that a person can have eternal life, be saved by trusting in Jesus without having any explicit knowledge that he died and rose again for your sins. So I'm certainly not condoning uh, Hodges' carte blanche, but uh, i got to give him credit. This statement is spot on. And he said, quote, How strange that in our day and time we've been told so often that fruitlessness is a sure sign that a person is unsaved. Certainly we don't get this idea from the Bible. Rather, the Bible teaches that unfruitfulness in a believer is a sure sign that one is no longer moving forward, no longer growing in Christ. It's a sign that the Christian is spiritually sick and until well again is not going to enjoy spiritual success. In other words, in the same way that a branch has to stay connected to the vine if it wants to bear fruit, if we're going to bear fruit, if we're going to reflect, let our practice, as we started out saying this session, our, if, let our practice reflect our position, we've got to stay close to the Lord. We can't separate ourselves from the Lord, go out here and live in the flesh and live on our own without thinking about the Lord and staying close to the Lord and then wonder why we're not bearing fruit. You'll bear fruit all right, but it'll be the fruit of the flesh, not the fruit of the Spirit. So back to John 15, what is the result of not abiding? And here's where people really begin to get fanciful and really miss the plain, clear context of the passage. Jesus says, if anyone does not abide in me, if you don't stay close to me, remember, abide means to remain close, a minnow, then he's cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Hellfire. Yeah. It's unbelievable how often we see the word fire and we assume it's hell. There are a lot of places where fire is used in Scripture. It doesn't mean hell. Let's, let's be clear. This is a metaphor. I mean, it should be obvious. Nobody thinks that we are literally a branch. I mean, do you think Jesus means you are literally a branch? Is he saying he's literally a vine? <laughs> is he saying we're literally being pruned with pruning shears or literally being lifted up with you know, tithes and stuff like you do in a, with your tomato plants? None of it's literal. It's a metaphor. And yet you come to this part of the metaphor, which is exactly what they would do. Branches that become disconnected from the vine, you can't glue them back on, right? You can't grab some duct tape and stick them back on in a gardening sense. So what do you do? Well, you gather them up and you toss them in the burn pile, right? And just as the vine is not literal, the branches are not literal, the garden is not literal, the pruning is not literal, it's all a metaphor. The burning is not literal, and yet sometimes, for some reason, some people get to this passage and all of a sudden they begin to think he's talking about hell here, which is nothing could be further from the truth. Um, so again, in verse 2, we talked about the springtime process of, of, of pruning and lifting up. And in verse 6, 
you know, it's the fall process of walking through the vineyard and collecting those branches that have become separated from the vine and throwing them out. Branches that, for whatever reason, become severed from the vine are no longer useful for accomplishing the purpose for which they were designed, which is bearing grapes. <laughs> if you're disconnected, you're not going to bear grapes. And likewise, believers who are not abiding in Christ are not useful for the purpose for which we're designed, which is to bear fruit to the glory of God. Jesus' point here is not the judgment of believers, it's the usefulness of believers. The reference to burning is just incidental to the analogy. As I said, neither the vine, the branch, the fruit, none of it's literal and neither is the fire. It's, the point is it's no longer useful uh, to accomplish the purpose for which they were designed. Um, so he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out. Uh, if you do abide in me and my words abide in you, verse 7, uh, then you'll ask what you desire, and it shall be done. One of the many benefits of abiding in Christ, by the way, is answered prayer. That intimacy. J James, the Lord's brother, talks about this too in James 1. Um, so, you know, people assume that when Jesus says, you know, if you're not abiding in me, I'm going to cast you out as a branch, as is a simile, using like or as, it's a kind of figure of speech. The whole passage is a figure of speech, a metaphor. What does he mean? He doesn't mean you're going to hell. doesn't mean you can never be restored. The whole point of the command, he wouldn't command something that's not possible. He wouldn't be saying here, if you don't abide in me, if you stop abiding in me, it's curtains. You have no chance to ever abide in me. And then turn around and tell us to abide in him. How can we do something that's not possible to do? It's possible to be abiding. It's possible to not be abiding. Jesus is saying, choose option A. Abide in me. That's what I want you to do. Remain close to me. Uh, the notion that's just because Jesus uses a gardening metaphor here about burning up severed vines, that he's going to burn up anybody that doesn't abide in him, is silly. Not to mention the fact that why would Jesus be speaking to 11 Christians and tell them to be sure you become a Christian? Aren't they already Christians? It seems redundant. He's not talking about distinction between being a Christian and not a Christian, or a believer and not a believer. He's talking about two kinds of believers, those who bear fruit and those who don't, and you need to abide in, uh, in Christ. Um, so a lot of benefits of abiding. Another benefit is that it brings joy to the Father. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. Another benefit is that you'll be my uh, disciples, right? Um, look over at John 8. 31, John 8, 31, another place where Jesus uses the word meno, abide, and he says, I just realized I have it on the screen as well, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Remember what we talked about earlier, that it's possible to be a believer but not be a disciple? And it's possible to be a disciple and not be a believer? Disciple just means follower, right? So there are a lot of people that followed Jesus out of curiosity. The crowds gathered. There was a lot of buzz about him. He had done some miracles. Hey, that guy that did some miracles, he's coming. Why don't you come look? And they followed him. And where he stopped, they stopped. If he picked up and moved on, they followed. They tried to get closer. 
they may or may not have believed in him. In fact, John 6 tells us there are a lot of people that, in the crowds that did not believe in him. Uh, so you can be a disciple. Judas indeed was called a disciple. We know he was not a believer without being a believer. But the, the thing that people forget is you can also be a believer and not be a disciple. Peter was certainly not following Jesus when he uh, cursed Jesus, denied him three times publicly, and then cursed him. I mean, no one's going to be sitting on a street corner watching what's going on across the street. And here's this fella. Someone says, hey, you're, you're with Jesus, aren't you? No, I'm not. I don't know Jesus. Another guy comes along. Hey, aren't you with Jesus? No, I'm not. Third guy comes along. Aren't you one of Jesus' you know, followers? No, I'm not. You bleep and bleep, bleep. Get out of here. No one's going to be watching that and going, wow, that guy's a pretty, pretty strong follower of Jesus. <laughs> I mean, no, no one would think that. They're going to think just the opposite. But that was Peter. Peter was one of the inner three dis disciples, one of the closest people to Jesus. He was certainly a believer. But in that moment, in that snapshot, he was not following Christ. He was doing the opposite of following Christ. Um, look at, uh, let me see if I can find that. I think it's Matthew 16. Give me a second. Matthew 16. Yeah, yeah, this is it. So this is in Matthew 16, verse 21. Just follow along on this. From, the time Je from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and raised the third day. So Jesus as gets closer and closer to that final trip to Jerusalem, where we are finding ourselves contextually in John 15. He's starting to tell Jesus, he's starting to tell the disciples more and more about his death and resurrection. So then Peter, verse 22, this is Matthew 16, 22, takes Peter aside and begins to rebuke him, and he says, Far be it from you, Lord, literally, no Lord, which has often been pointed out that no Lord is an oxymoron. There's never an occasion that anyone should be heard saying no Lord, right? It should be yes, Lord. But, uh, you know, he says, no Lord, this will never happen to you. And this is where we talked about earlier, Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. That phrase, get behind me, Satan, actually has the force of get away from following me. See, you can't, be, you can't claim to be following me and at the same time not conforming to my will and doing what I want you to do. So it's the exact opposite of being a disciple. Get away from following me. You are an offense to me, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So Peter was absolutely, at times in his life, like all of us, not a follower of Jesus. You can't be rejecting Jesus' will denying your relationship with Jesus, cursing Jesus, and be considered a disciple of Jesus. They don't go together. So you can be a believer, but not be following Christ. You can be following Christ, but not be a believer. The goal is to be a believer who is following Christ. And Jesus says one way to do that is to stick close to Him. And in fact, indeed, He says, that's the quintessential uh, definition of a disciple is you're not just following me but you're close with me you're right behind me you're everywhere i go you're there in the first century disciple meant proximity uh and i've written a, a paper about this it's in our free section as well i think if not i'll make sure we put it up there uh it was published in a journal several years ago on what it means to be a disciple 
And I just I did a word study on the word disciple, mathetes, as well as the verb follow, akalutheo. And it was really fascinating what I discovered is that in the Gospels, you see uh, the word follow always used of a person following in physical proximity another person, particularly people following Jesus, the disciples of Jesus. Uh, the word disciple, you don't find it mentioned after the book of Acts. It's not mentioned in a single place in the epistles, right? In Acts 11, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch, and then it sort of phases out with, you know, as you read the rest of the book of Acts. Now, does that mean it's wrong to use the word disciple today? No, not at all. Words are defined in their context and in their usage. But it, uh, the point is it had a specific meaning in the first century time of Christ, and that meant to be a follower. And, and Jesus was the rabbi. He was the teacher. You would leave your father and mother, leave your jobs, leave your houses, pack a lunch, and you'd go. And you'd go where he went. You'd be in close proximity. And so when Jesus says, abide in my word or abide in me uh, and my word is just a metonym for me uh, he's saying stay close to me stick close to me that's how you'll be my disciples that's what it means to be a disciple conversely if you're not abiding in me that's the textbook example of not being a disciple you can't claim to be following Christ and I mean, in not following him. You can't claim to be abiding in Christ and not following him. It doesn't work that way. Um, so back to that study, what was interesting is uh, in, the New in the epistles, you begin to see a little bit of a different flavor of what it means to live for Christ. It's sort of once removed. It's Paul saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ, because he saw Christ, and the people that were reading his letters didn't. You know, many of them, certainly us today who didn't walk and talk with Christ. So instead of physically following him, we now walk by faith and not by sight. Um, we're, we're, we're trusting in Jesus by faith. Um, but you never see that verb akalutheo used in the New Testament of an individual or person following another person until guess when? Revelation 19 at the second coming when the church is following Christ on white horses. And that's when we'll be once again right with him in close proximity. Uh, and it'll be a, a different, uh, whole different experience for us to be disciples of Christ at that point. Now we're following him sort of from a distance, right? Um, so, so it's really interesting, um, uh, you know, the, the whole concept there of disciple. So when we say discipleship today, we don't mean physical proximity. We just mean we've adopted the, uh, the teachings of that person. So we use disciple in a lot of different ways in English. We might say, uh, you know, this high school basketball coach is a disciple of John Wooden or this football coach is a disciple of Tom Landry, meaning they, they've adopted his, their techniques and their system. And so when we say disciple of Christ, we can't literally physically walk where, where he is because he's not here physically. But we certainly can remain close to his word, which he's given us, the inspired word of God. And we can adopt his methods and follow his guidance and obey his commands. And one of those commands is to abide in Christ, and, and that's how we are his uh, disciples. So if we summarize, uh, abiding in Christ relates to the believer's sanctification, not justification. So going back to the 
diagram that I started out uh, this session with. It involves our practical righteousness, and it brings abundant life. It uh, involves you know, this, our, our practice, not our position. We, we want to stay close to Christ so that our life will outwardly uh, express the natural outgrowth of who Christ is. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Well, you can't produce the fruit of the Spirit if you're not abiding in Christ, if you're not remaining uh, close to Him. And uh, to abide means to remain in close fellowship with Christ so that we can bear fruit and bring glory to the Father. And this, we're going to get into 1 John uh, tomorrow. I'm going to look at 1 John and James, two passages as case studies, if you will, uh, about the doctrine of salvation. Two passages that are more than any other uh, abused you know, and mishandled when it comes to you know, the doctrine of salvation. But in 1 John, he... John the Apostle, who was right there in the room listening to Jesus teach what we just read, invokes the word abide again. And, and the passage I mentioned earlier, John 2.28, 1 John 2.28, little children, an endearing term to refer to believers, abide in Christ so that when he appears you'll have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Um, if you're not abiding in Christ, it doesn't mean you're going to go to hell. It just means there'll be that moment of regret at the Bema, where you recognize, boy, I wish I'd have done more. And uh, the Bema judgment is something that is, uh, I think, one of the most undertaught doctrines in the doctrine of soteriology. But it, it answers the, the question, it answers that tension about man's natural desire to work and to earn things. I mean, think about it. Did you realize that we were created, even before sin entered the world, to work? God gave Adam a job in the garden, tend the garden, name the animals. That was before the fall. So it's part of the image of God and man that we want to work, we want to earn things. The problem is the one thing we need most of all since the fall, which is forgiveness of sins and eternal life, we can't earn. As we've talked about extensively this week, you cannot do enough good works to overcome your sin problem. You've got to receive the free gift of eternal life paid for by the blood of Christ. So... But yet God knows the way he made us, we have this desire to work. So the doctrine of eternal rewards, which relates to our sanctification, sort of answers that tension. Calvinists don't have a category for that because for them it all comes down to either you're saved or you're not. If you're doing bad things, you're clearly not saved. So you need to get saved or you need to get saved again or you need to mean business or do it better or do it harder or be more committed this time. Uh, a grace view of scriptures a true grace view, really understands that, no, you can be a believer and you might not be abiding in Christ, you might not be living for Him, uh, and therefore you're, you're going to lose rewards at the Bema. Not be punished, there's no punishment for uh, believers, but a lack of reward. And that's not something that is uh, somehow uh, should provoke jealousy or anything like that. Um, you're not going to feel punished if you, your reward is not as much as somebody else's. If I, if I uh, in, in, ask my sons to go uh, shovel the drive or shovel the walk or plow the drive or something, and I, I say, I'll give you each uh, 20 bucks, and then I'm watching out the window, and they come in, and, uh, and I tell them before they start, I say, now, if you do a really good job, I'll give you a tip. And so I'm watching, they come in, and I give one of them, uh, man, great job, you did a good job, I'm going to give you 25 bucks. And I give the other one 30 bucks. Is that 
within my purview? Absolutely. Is, uh, are they going to feel rewarded? Absolutely. Right? And by the way, we don't even know for certain. There's so much we don't know about that moment of reward at the Bema judgment. We don't know how it happens. Does it happen in an instant? Does it happen over time? Does it take place during the entire tribulation period? Are we all going to be seeing it? We sometimes get this picture like God's going to put us up on the big screen and the whole world is going to say, see what this guy did. You know, shame on you. I don't think it's going to be like that. I think it's going to be a personal, intimate moment with the Savior. And believe me, in that moment, when you see Christ face to face, you're going to want to be able to, to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And I think that's what John's saying in 1 John 2, 28. He's saying, look, be, you want to be confident. Stay close with Him. The last thing we'd want to do uh, would be to have the rapture happen at a time when we're living out of fellowship. Now, thankfully, it has no bearing on our eternal destiny because the promise of Jesus is sure and true, and if we're part of the family of God, He can't deny His own, 1 Timothy 2.12, 2 Timothy 2.12. Um, but it certainly has a bearing on our, on our rewards. And so, um, you know, let's, in, let's just abide in Christ. Let's remain in close fellowship uh, with Him. By the way, speaking of that 2 Timothy 2.12, this just popped into my mind, just to show you how, another example of how Calvinists twist the Scriptures to force their view. Uh, if you look up at John MacArthur's interpretation of 2 Timothy 2.12, have you seen this or remembered it? Um, so what does it say? First of all, it, uh, let's pick it up in verse 11. This is a faithful saying, if we died with him, we shall live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. There are benefits, one of the rewards of persevering is that he's going to put you in charge of certain positions of authority. Remember the parable of the Minas in Luke 19, which is directly applicable to the church age. It's completely different from the parable of the talents, which is for Israel in a separate context, separate occasion. Uh, but the parable of the Minas, Jesus gives all ten servants each one Mina. They all get the same thing, a life of service. And then he goes away to receive the kingdom. He comes back, you give an account. And, you know, if you the one who turned the one mina into ten, he says, man, great job, I'm going to put you in charge of ten cities. The one who turned it into five, he says, man, good job, I'm going to, you're going to be in charge of five cities. But there was one servant who did nothing with it. He didn't produce anything. And in the, in the context, he still gets into the kingdom. That's very important to understand the context there. It's, that's the contrast with the parallel talents. It's, it's not the case with that. But in the minas, you've got two groups of people, the servants and the citizens. The citizens who did not want the king to reign over them, representing unbelieving Israel, they get cast into the Gehenna, weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the servants, even the one who did nothing, gets into the kingdom. He just doesn't have any position of authority when he gets there. He doesn't get to reign with Christ. And Hebrews talks about the same thing, the, the whole idea of metakoi. Not every believer is going to get to reign and have that position of authority in the kingdom. We're going to have different uh, positions. You know, he... He might say to me, you know, I want you to take, uh, you know, Silsby. And he might say to Cody, I want you to take Western Europe. You know, that's probably what's going to end up happening. You know, you've proven yourself more, more faithful, right? You just don't know. I mean, that's, that's our goal is to serve the Lord faithfully, to hear that phrase, well done, good and faithful servant. But so if you don't endure, if you're one of those that's shipwrecked on the sidelines of Christianity, you don't, you don't abide in Christ, you don't stay close to Him, then you don't get to endure. In fact, he goes on to say, if you deny him, 
then he's going to deny you the right to reign is the context here. People pull that second half of verse 12 all out of the uh, context and they say, oh, if you deny the Lord, he's going to deny you entrance into heaven. It doesn't say that at all. The context is about reigning with Christ. So those who don't endure, yeah, guess what? You're going to be denied the right to serve on the thrones with him in the kingdom someday. But then verse 13 is instructive. If we are faithless, he remains faithful and he cannot deny himself. In other words, even if we get to the point of not believing, our faithless means it's opistuo, stop believing, no belief, right? You get to the point where you deny the Lord, don't you stop believing in him. Guess what? God remains faithful and cannot deny himself. Remember, we're part of the family of God. He can't deny one of his own children. You know how MacArthur takes verse 13? He says, if you stop believing, God must be faithful to himself and will deny you entrance into heaven because he cannot deny, he can't be, act contrary to his nature. So, right. so any questions about abiding? Yeah. Uh, so it makes sense to me that you could be a disciple and not a believer, because obviously, like Judas, you know, he was literally following around after Jesus, and he wasn't a believer. But how would that translate to like today, being a disciple and not a believer, um, since Jesus isn't? Ah, that's a great question. So the question is. It seems clear enough in the New Testament examples, first century, that someone could be a follower of Jesus but not a believer. But today, in modern church age, how would we describe someone who's a follower of Jesus but not a believer? Oh, I think it happens all the time. There are a lot of people who call themselves Christians because they've, they think of him as a great teacher. He's a great prophet. He's got some good sayings. He's just like another great you know, teacher. <laughs> And so they, they adopt some of his sayings. In fact, a lot of Christ's sayings from his earthly ministry when Christianity was founded in the first century have been incorporated and adopted by other religions, mimicked, if you will, in other religions. So I think, yeah, people can, can claim to follow Christ. They can quote him. They can put bumper stickers on their car. You might say they're following Christ or following his teachings, but they've never believed in him. You've got to believe in Jesus and Him alone for salvation as the only one who can save you, and then you're saved. Would that be Matthew 7 type deal? Lord, Lord, did we not cast out the demons in Your name? Uh, yeah, I think that's a good analogy. The, the first century Jewish leaders that He's rebuking there uh, at the end of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, and by the way, we know that He was sort of, His remarks were pointed at them because at the end, Matthew gives some commentary and says something to the effect of, they were really upset with him, right? So if the shoe fits, why, why would they be upset, right? So, yeah, I think he's, he's accusing them of walking the walk and talking the talk, but they weren't really believers. They, they acted like it. Now, that was before the church age, of course, so you're making an application, but he's basically saying, you know, you may be Jewish and you may be keeping the letter of the law, but your heart is far from me. You, you've got to be perfect. And the kind of righteousness that heaven demands is not practical righteousness. It's faith righteousness. So the whole Sermon on the Mount can be summarized by, as a contrast between faith righteousness and fake righteousness. Or faith righteousness and self-righteousness. And you see that in Matthew's argument as a, a gospel writer. Because the very first thing out of the shoot that he addresses after the Sermon on the Mount is in chapter 8. 
when he contrasts the faith of the centurion with the lack of faith, he says, I have not seen such great faith in all of Israel, right, than he has in this Gentile. So he's saying, look, guys, you better get with the program. You, gotta, you need faith righteousness like Father Abraham had, not this self-righteous, fake righteousness. So, but yeah, I think that's a great example. They were, a lot of people are going to say, man, I followed you, Christ. And he's going to say, sorry, you didn't believe in me. That's the problem. You didn't rest your faith solely in me as the only one who can forgive your sin. And then you had a question. What is the biggest impediment to abiding today? Well, we could, I think a lot of passages come to mind. Um, the uh, parable of the soils, you know, is relevant. I know that's talking about Israel and the coming kingdom uh, and the relationship to certain truths about the kingdom. But still, the cares of this world can choke out and distract us. Um, I mean, it all comes back down to those contrasts we looked at before lunch of faith versus sight, yielding versus not, walking in the Spirit versus catering to the flesh. When we, when we get our eyes off of Him, we get drawn away, and then it becomes easier and easier the next time. I think, you know, we all know in, in, uh, experientially that when you give in to temptation, it becomes easier the next time to give in to it. And then the next time, the next, that's how habits are formed. Similarly, when you resist temptation, you build up a layer of defense, and it becomes harder and harder for you know, Satan's tempting work to, to break through. And so, uh, in, in an ideal sense, believers that are growing in Christ, have been abiding in Him and staying close to Him, are going to be less susceptible to some of the same old temptations that they were in the past. Um, but mostly I would say distraction is, is what keeps us from abiding. We just we don't give it the attention that we need. What would you say? I'm not sure. I, I think there's enough. It could be a number of things, but I, I didn't know whether there would be something that just kind of, you know, that you've experienced or seen. Um, I think probably, I think probably, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking Paul's words, whatever's not of faith is sin. It all comes down to lack of trust in God. Do you trust Him? And things happen in our lives that challenge our faith. Let's be honest. You know, we read about this very transparently in the Psalms and, you know, some of, some of the biblical uh, teachers, biblical examples are great examples of, you know, what not to do. But when something happens that that throws us for a loop sometimes in our flesh we question God we blame God we shake our fist at God and we've got to keep those times to a minimum and quickly work through them and rest in in him yet will I trust him like Job said right and if we we'll do that then I think that's that's going to be a sign of abiding close to him yeah Church, almost like a sheep's and wolf clothing type of thing, or is that something that you like? 
No, is, is it possible for someone to not be a believer and be active in church? Absolutely. I think churches are filled with unbelievers. Not for the same reason that Calvinists think. See, what's really weird is, you know, I agree that there are a lot of people that are unsaved that think they're saved, right? Um, but not because they're living a sinful life. That's not what shows me they're not saved. It's that they've not heard and believed the pure gospel. So they were fed like a false gospel or corrupted gospel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's think of uh, like Church of Christ, for example. They believe in baptismal regeneration. You're not going to heaven unless you've been baptized in water. That's how you get saved, among other things. Like most Christian religions, they think you got to have faith, but it's faith plus, right? So if that's all they've been taught, if you were born and raised in that culture and in that denomination... So as long as you're adding works into it, yeah. Right, it's exclusive faith, as I talk about in the book. It's not just faith like a Luby's cafeteria, where as long as faith somewhere in there, you're in. It's faith alone in Christ alone. So, but if that's all you've ever uh, grown up in, you might be very devout, very faithful in your church and singing in the choir, teaching Sunday school, whatever. But if you've never understood that you, it's simply by grace, trusting in Christ, you're resting your eternal destiny upon a work. So yeah, I think there, there's a lot of examples of people. And that would be another example of Cody's comment about following Christ, but yet not believing in Him. Uh, and so... You know, one other point is that a lot of the passages in the Gospels that Jesus speaks to the disciples, the twelve, uh, are taken as salvation passages, but they're really discipleship passages. So when he says, take up your cross and follow me, or don't put your hand to the plow and look back, or count the cost before building, those are said to Christians. That's what we should be doing. That's not how you get saved. And one of the problems that Calvinists... Uh, I think the reason they land at the conclusion that they do about exactly how you express faith is that they blur the distinction between discipleship passages and salvation passages, and they, they misunderstand that distinction. Because as I've said, they don't have a category for disciple versus Christian. They're synonyms. You can, according to a Calvinist, you cannot be a believer if you're not a disciple. And if you're a disciple, that means you're a believer. They're the same thing. Therefore, if you're not following Christ, you're not a believer in their view. Right? All right, anything else before we take a break? All right, let's come back at, let's take a 15-minute break because I had a couple things come through I need to deal with. So come back at 2.40, all right?